You're listening to Radio Maria England, and this is Father Toby with your word for today. And I want to begin today by reading the the gospel from yesterday, the first Sunday of Lent, and it's taken from the beginning of Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for forty days and forty nights, after which he was very hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to turn into loaves. But he replied, Scripture says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil then took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for Scripture says, he will put you in his angels' charge, and they will support you on their hands, in case you hurt your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Scripture also says, you must not put the Lord your God to the test. Next, taking him to a very high mountain, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. I will give you all these, he said, if you fall at my feet and worship me. Then Jesus replied, Be off, Satan, for scripture says you must worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Then the devil left him, and angels appeared and looked after him. On the first Sunday of Lent, the readings have a rather demonic theme hear about the the devil not just in the gospel but also in our first reading. Demons are actually mentioned on many occasions in the Bible but there can be a tendency given our modern understanding of psychology and mental illness and the fact that things that were previously attributed to demonic activity have been found to have other explanations. There can be a tendency, a temptation to reinterpret any passage in the Bible that mentions demons in such a way as to understand them only in a figurative way and suppose that demons aren't actually real. One example I read a few days ago was a passage from the Gospels where a boy was having a fit and we're told Jesus exercised a demon. And the biblical commentary I was reading stated that the boy had epilepsy. But if it was epilepsy, why did Jesus exercise him? There are plenty of other instances of healings from illness where Jesus does not exercise. Surely he wouldn't exercise, wouldn't use such serious words about the devil just to go along with what others thought. That seems highly inconsistent with the rest of his ministry. I won't be using that commentary anymore, and nor should you. Don't read biblical commentaries where the author brings their worldview and imposes it upon Jesus. Tao, on a related note, we end up with biblical commentaries that explain away miracles because the author doesn't believe in the possibility of miracles. Nonetheless, when it comes to demonic forces, you'll regularly hear people saying, and sometimes people in senior positions in the church, we don't believe in that sort of stuff anymore. Even a very senior Jesuit a couple of years ago came out and said the devil was a symbol. Not the Pope, I hasten to add. If you listen to him speak, he takes the devil very seriously. 
But this temptation to symbolize the devil, or to turn the devil into a symbol and to reject the reality of the powers of evil, this is a temptation C.S. Lewis warns us of in his brilliant uh, satirical piece, The Screwtape Letters. This takes the form of a series of letters from a senior demon called Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood. Now, Wormwood has the job of tempting a human being who was referred throughout the book as the patient. Wormwood's more experienced uncle gives advice on how this should be done. And in one of his letters, Screwtape writes to his nephew Wormwood as follows. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and with horns, and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that figure, he cannot therefore believe in you. If you've not read the Screwtape Letters, you should. It is very, very funny and simultaneously hugely insightful into how we get tricked into, tempted into sin. And its underlying message is very serious. If you want to understand the psychology of sin and how the devil uses thoughts to lead us into temptation and then to sin, it's a brilliant place to start. You'll laugh at yourself, which is always a good thing because it diminishes our pride. And you'll laugh at yourself and see how easily you get tricked and hopefully be a little wiser to the tricks of the devil next time around. Not least the trick of allowing himself to be comically portrayed such that belief in him starts to be viewed as comical. My very serious belief though, like Lewis's, like the Pope and like the Church, is that demons are real that they are very manipulative and devious in the ways they try to frustrate God's glorious plan of redemption. And so whilst we shouldn't foster an unhealthy interest in demons, neither should we simply choose not to believe in their existence or ignore them. Because if we don't believe in the existence of demons or if we simply ignore them, then we won't recognize our need to pray for protection against them. The reality is that demons are powerful creatures. They can put all sorts of thoughts that we wouldn't ordinarily have, wouldn't want to have, into our minds, and we can be easily deceived by them if we don't ask for divine assistance. Note here that I say deceived or tempted, not controlled. Demons cannot control us. They have no power over us which we do not first consent to. Take the demons seriously then. For some people, in fact, taking evil very seriously can lead them to God. I don't think you can look at what goes on in the world on an average day, maintain a belief in objective morality, and not take the existence of evil forces seriously. But note, taking them seriously is different to being fascinated by evil. But if you take evil seriously, you will look for something to fight it with. Then you'll quickly realize your own inadequacy. 
and then look to a power greater than yourself. Do that, and I think you'll be on the road to finding God. That's the journey I think Jordan Peterson, love him or loathe him, is on too. And I know of one lady who regularly comes to the young adults group Deo Gratias that regularly meets at the Rosary Shrine where I live, who came to belief in God having been an atheist, prompted by the use of religious language and symbols in Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the fight against evil. The alternative to recognizing that there are evil forces at work in the world is to decide that some people are simply born wicked and that my view of their wickedness is objective. Those are really your choices. People are born wicked or they have come under wicked influences. The Catholic Church goes with the latter. If you go with born wicked, first of all you deny the wicked their freedom of choice, and you also lose the right to seek to hold them truly responsible for what they've done. If they were simply born that way, what else could they have done? And you lose also the possibility of them ever changing. And that's bad enough when you think it of other people. It's worse when you recognize that I have done wicked things myself. And I suggest that if you start thinking seriously about evil in the world, an honest look will lead you closer to home than you might have begun. Yes, you might look at the war in Ukraine, but as some of those same desires of, say, Putin, not on my heart, even if I don't manifest them so barbarically. And if they are, if I do have such wicked tendencies, is that simply who I am? Is there no hope? Might I not change? I've recently returned from Rwanda where no more than 30 years ago, over the course of just a few weeks, a massive, massive slaughter occurred of Tutsis and of Hutus who were considered Tutsi sympathizers, with close to a million killed and butchered in this period, and many other atrocities committed which I will not describe on the radio. Now, the people who carried out these actions did truly wicked things. But were they truly wicked people? Was that all they were? Or were they sinners in need of powerful grace who had come under a wicked influence? If they'd only been viewed as wicked people, people who would, could never change, then I think the bloodbath would still be going on in Rwanda as you sought to kill all the wicked people to stop them from doing it again, and the cycle of violence would never end. C.S. Lewis once commented on how, it are how with our enlightened attitude to witches, um, we should ask ourselves that if we were genuinely under the impression that there were people present in our communities who sought to work evil and to poison and corrupt minds, who sought to capture our children, would we not seek to do the same as those who conducted the witch trials? What he has suggested has changed is our belief that witches exist and are at work. But he thinks that the desire to put an end to the work of witches, if such existed, is a good one, and a society that didn't have that would be in trouble. But if you think that people are born wicked, 
then likely lots of wicked gets done in putting an end to wickedness, and the wickedness just continues. But the church teaches that no human person is simply born wicked. We are born good. We are made in the image and likeness of God. But through the fault of Adam and Eve, that integrating grace was lost that oriented us always to the good. And we have been left good, but nonetheless prone to wickedness and open to the temptations of the devil. The work of the church then is to constantly echo Christ's call to conversion and to mediate the graces that he pours out from the cross through his church to make such a conversion a reality. Our reading from the book of Genesis, which was the, the first reading at Mass yesterday, tells of how we were made and the state of original justice, of original innocence that existed all too briefly. But our gospel tells that the coming of Christ is our hope for a return to the life of grace, and the triumph over the temptations of the devil in the desert is the beginning of the victory, a victory that will be finally won on the cross and that Christ invites us to become part of. Every time you feel tempted to sin, but instead you invoke Christ and the powers of goodness, every time you do that, you participate in Christ's victory and you give a slap in the face to the devil. Join in with me, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. Do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast down into hell Satan and all evil spirits who wander the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. And now I'd like to leave you with that beautiful prayer sung in Latin in a beautiful, beautiful chant setting. Sancte Michael, Archangele, defende nos in prelio, contra nequisiam et insidias, diaboli est
Erwagandori.